Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information, please go to biota.org slash podcast. Well, we have some news and notes. I'm not sure if Blog Talk Radio is actually up and working currently, so this may not be a recorded short show. But for folks listening in, we have a chat window open. You can get to it through the Blog Talk Radio Biota page. And we have some news and notes. Next episode on Friday, June 20th at 8pm Pacific is on the philosophy of artificial life. What is the philosophy of artificial life, you may ask? Well, it has a long history. Since artificial life started, there have been various uh, artificial life developers and also various philosophers that have had interest in artificial life and the philosophy of artificial life. And this was initially distilled with Margaret A. Bowden's book, which I believe was called The Philosophy of Artificial Life, and I think it came out in 1993. So if you're familiar with the history of artificial life, that's relatively soon after the term was coined. So even in that kind of time frame, folks were thinking about what artificial life produced in terms of philosophical thought, in terms of applied philosophical thought. In addition, I am in the process of mastering the Biota CDs that will go to Artificial Life 11. However, I've put a call out to folks who are interested in receiving bundles of these CDs for their particular universities or institutions to get in contact. If you're familiar with CD presses, the economies of scale are such that there are a number of additional CDs that will be left over after Artificial Life 11, and this is an ideal opportunity to get in contact with me, Tom, at mobile8.com and pick up a bundle of CDs that you can distribute at your university or institution. I put the call out via various mailing lists and also on the Graysum blog recently, and I heard back from uh, a few uh, what I'm calling long-lost biotans. I heard back from Dimitri Terezopoulos, and for folks who are familiar with the Biota 2 audio that went out on the podcast probably about a year and a half ago now, Dimitri was one of the speakers, and also Larry Yeager, who was also one of the speakers. So they will be receiving uh, a bundle of CDs for their respective universities, UCLA and Indiana, respectively. But it was wonderful to hear from those folk, and it'll be wonderful to provide them with Biota CDs. A number of other folks have gotten in contact, but if you're interested for your university or institution to receive a pile of free Biota CDs to promote the Biota podcast, then get in contact, tom at noble8.com. Well, there's uh, quite a bit of Graysum news. I was hoping to have both Bruce Stamer and also Gerald DeYoung on the call this evening to talk a little bit about this specific Graysum chapters. But um, as they're not on the call, I'll, I'll try to fill in for them. Um, first, there was a meeting, an informal meeting with regards to Graysum Brighton. And I think it's wonderful that these Graysum groups are getting together in a wide variety of locations. The Graysum Brighton group um, was formed due to uh, two folks um, both joining the Biota Facebook group and then realizing that they both lived in Brighton. And I think four people met somewhere in Brighton, uh, and that's very promising. There is actually an Artificial Life Academic Epicenter in the Brighton area, so I'm sure they'll be able to get folks to Graysum Brighton, and maybe folks from Graysum London can exchange guests with Graysum Brighton and vice versa. We have our first caller. Bruce Damer calling in. Hey, Bruce. How's it going? It's good. We were avoided by the big uh, brush fire in Bonnie Dune, but the sky is uh, very yellow here. Gosh. Can you smell smoke in the air? We could for three days, yeah. Now there's an 18,000-acre fire in the Los Padres forest that's blowing smoke 
from the east over the whole Bay Area. Yeah. Well, that's not too good, but you timed your call perfectly because I was just about to talk about Graytham Silicon Valley San Francisco news. Yeah. You're, you're having a speaker who will be speaking within the next couple of weeks, aren't you? Yeah, in fact, uh, Tuesday the 24th of June at the Internet Archive, which is in the Presidio in San Francisco. Uh, and we're going to have uh, a return, of course, by Jeffrey Ventrella, who's going to show some more recent work than Gene Poole and really sort of deep, deep into deep Ventrella. And then we have a new member, John Cumbers, uh, who's actually a synthetic biologist. And for those who don't know what that term means, these are people who are literally using the building blocks of DNA in wet, wet biology, in the wet chemistry, uh, to build up you know, basic building blocks of life or directly inserting genes and doing things like that. So they're, they're what Craig Venter calls, he's using the term artificial life to describe. So John is uh, at Ames Research Center. Uh, he's from Brown University, and uh, he's actually coming here tomorrow for a tour of the DigiBarn, and we're going to talk about what he'll talk about on Grey Thumb uh, June 24th. Fascinating. And is he actually based in the Bay Area, or is he just visiting from Brown? He's actually originally from the UK, comes via Brown, and sort of in a in an internship or a postdoc, I can't quite recall, uh, at Ames. I was in the queue at the Ames cafeteria, uh, and I overheard him talking <laughs> to uh, somebody that we know, or mutually knew, and that's how I connected with him. And he sat with us at lunch, and that's that's how we got sort of a historic connection into between uh, a life and syn- synthetic biology. And did, had he had any connection with the Graysum community prior to your chance meeting? No, not at all. Uh, and then subsequently, we got the uh, the DIY bio uh, note from another friend who said, "Do you know that this is going on in Boston? It's do-it-yourself biology." And it's also synthetic biologists who happen to meet in the Asgard pub. But there is actually common members between that group and the Grey Thumb group. So I can't uh, claim any provenance on uh, making the connection between the two communities. Right, right. Fascinating, fascinating. And um, do you think Al Lundell will be filming this talk as well? He's scheduled to do it. So we'll get, again, we'll get a nice high-def version of the meeting. And we're in a historic location at the Internet Archive, which is in an old, I think it's an old officer's quarters, an old uh, white house uh, in the middle of the Presidio. And it's where the Brewster Kale and Company have built their organization, which now has the largest data centers in the world that we know of anyway. Maybe, maybe Google's are larger, but... Certainly. I know, I mean, Brewster seems to vein into the artificial life community in some regard. Do you think he'll be stopping by? It's hard to say. Um, it's an evening thing, and he, uh, he's sort of in and out. It's kind of hard to peg him down uh, for things like that. But I think we'll definitely let him know or have Jeffrey and Baird, um, who were both part of their on the Internet Archive staff, will bend his ear and see if he'll show up. No, it's certainly a fascinating event, and I think with regards to the EvoGrid project in particular, this is something where the 
the wisdom of the collective Internet Archive folk, particularly with regards to massive networks and open source, could really be very well utilised. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting what comes out of that. I think, uh, for me personally, Al Lundell's video of the first great um, uh, Silicon Valley meeting was particularly moving. I mean, the quality of the video and also the intimacy. I mean, it was like, and I'm sure other folk that have seen the video uh, will agree, it's like actually being there at the Grather meeting through Al's camera lens. So it was wonderful to uh, to see the last video that came through. Yeah, Al is a, a premier documenter of all things new in Silicon Valley, and uh, you know he he covered my first avatars conferences in in '96, and he's he was the first West Coast editor for Byte magazine in 1980. So he he's covered Timothy Leary and his various. It's all connected, and Al has it all on video. Yes. The, the gentle grazing sounds of pizza and the opening of cans and things like that were particularly atmospheric. But I was hoping to have Gerald on this call as well. He said he'd set his alarm, but it doesn't appear that he's on, so I'm going to have to um, somewhat... Uh, well, I'm going to have to attempt to be Gerald with regards to promoting Graytham Netherlands. He's got it operating out of an art installation, and it looks like it's going to be happening out of that installation on a, a frequent basis. I'm going to put links to, in the show notes for folks in the Netherlands vicinity um, who are interested in attending the first Greatham Netherlands meeting. Um, but it looks like it's a, a fascinating space, and I think they'll probably get uh, you know artistic folk dropping through. It seems to be in between two additional presentations, which will probably bring in even more curious eyes um, there was also apparently a meeting in Rome this week, uh, which I was hoping to have Gerald uh, discuss as well, but I'll try to get correspondence either from him or uh, Justin Lyon with regards to the Rome Artificial Life meeting and the potential possibly even for there to be a grey thumb Rome. I'm not sure if you caught the initial news with regards to grey thumb Brighton, but these grey thumbs are uh, popping up all over the place. All it seems to take is a couple of people and then they find a couple more people and it all seems to grow perfectly organically. It's wonderful. It's truly wonderful, and, and I'll, as many listeners might know, I'll be at the Grey Thumb July London in the UK, that is, uh, July 11th uh, at the British Computer Society. And, you know, we are really lucky. We, between, between SRI International, which is a, a very important location for the birth of robotics and, and artificial intelligence and whatnot, the great grand old institution of Silicon Valley. We have our meetings there, and then the Internet Archive, and then in London, the, the British Computer Society, and various wonderful pubs in the Cambridge area for the mothership, you know, Grey Thumb Boston. Uh, I, I can't imagine what the, the Rome location is. It's probably <laughs> a cafe on the plaza somewhere. Oh, yes. Yes, I mean, I think all these, all these Grey Thumb locations make... Uh, you know, international nomads such as ourselves probably very pleased in terms of the fact that we can probably pick destinations and visit at opportune times of Greytham meetings as you're already doing. Well, in a virtual sense, I appeared on the Apologia podcast on Wednesday night. And for folks who can remember probably two years ago now, Dr. Zachary Moore appeared on the Biota podcast and he invited me on his podcast, Apologia. Now, technically, Apologia is about atheists and theists coming together and discussing topics. However, 
I don't think they were really prepared to have me on. I talked for, well, I don't know how it will be edited out, so I can't say the number of minutes, but I talked for at least 90 to 95% of the podcast with regards to artificial life-related issues. There was a fellow on who was a science fiction author uh, and a singularity enthusiast who asked me a, a number of questions, and I think they all got in a, a number of questions, but the, the main thing was just the stunned silence after I provided answers. I think uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to appear in these kind of neutral settings as I did with regards to shrink wrap radio as well, because it obviously provides a lot of food for thought for, for folks that are artificial life curious. And one of the things that came out of it, which really wraps into this evening's topic quite, um, quite well, is the lack of popular media communication with regards to contemporary artificial life and the, in some regard, the divergence which we've already talked about in terms of uh, science fiction authors, Werner Vinci's writing and Kurzweil and the singularity movement with regards to um, raw processor power and things that artificial life developers have a, a very intimate connection with. I was uh, away last week in Nebraska and went through my uh, nature-inspired informatics chapter, which I haven't read in whole up until this point. And what struck me is the the brilliance of the uh, engineers that I have worked with in Intel and Apple, and the fact that folks like Werner Vinci and uh, Kurzweil, through through not having primary access to these kind of people, haven't actually come to the realization that the the revolution has possibly already happened in terms of the silicon. It's just a a matter for the stupid primates to catch up, to use a a Demarian um, concept. But the topic for this week uh, is what is the future of biota? And I have a number of points down, and I know you wanted to, to throw out an idea initially, Bruce. So what is your idea with regards to the future of biota? Well, as you know, uh, we've been batting back and forth all of the ins and outs of an evil grid, which for the listeners would be to take existing artificial life simulations and allow them to connect in a grid where things move back and forth and there's there's sort of co-evolution possible. But it struck me then, I had some really sort of tough questions. I think I was explaining all this to Galen. And in fact, um, the book chapter uh, went into final, uh, the book um, by Richard Gordon and Joseph Skekbach is now going to the publisher, and I think it's got some kind of a release date later this year. And by the way, related to that, um, Richard's actually asked me if I can find venues for events around the book launch. Um, and the interesting thing is next year, sort of the year of Darwin, <clears throat> 150 years after the publication of The Origin of Species. And so there's there's going to be sort of a year of evolution in 2009. And all that kind of wraps into this idea when when I was trying to explain uh, all of this to Galen about, uh, you know, what is, how, sort of theories of the universe and that the universe generates the ability to make in this weird property. And this I was also a conversation with Nick Herbert, who's a, a physicist uh, who lives in our area, who's written a lot of books about sort of physics, consciousness, and whatnot. And the discussion came down to what a weird property the universe has that it can make, that it allows to be made or to emerge mechanisms that make copies of mechanisms. And Dawkins describes this, I think, can't remember in which book, but it's sort of the 
the replicator, which makes the the carrier, whose job it is to create a copy of the replicator. And there's a blueprint in there. And if the universe has this little, you know, the universe has natural laws, but it also has this property that emerges that it's able to support. And it's a truly, Nick Herbert was commenting, this is a truly weird property. And it doesn't happen, you know, in very much of the universe, but we know it's happening around here. And is that is that property restricted to to mo- molecules only, you know, molecules in solution or, you know, possibly not. It might be that it happens in information, it happens in, in textual communications and conversation, that the ideas are, in fact, you know, we are carriers of ideas which have a build, build our communities to allow us to reproduce, to replicate and pass religions and ideas and cultural traditions on to our children. And maybe it happens in a number of places. But this brought me back to, in the evil grid, what are we trying to, to prove? Or what, what would be the most powerful proof uh, of that the Biota Project could engage in? And it struck me that if you, if you sort of took and made a, a simulated ecosystem, if you go in there and put a whole bunch of preconditions in, say like gene pool, or you already kind of come at it with, with pre-built creatures and pre-built physics and whatnot, what are you really proving? Are you proving that emergent phenomena can happen if you have enough mechanisms, put enough simple rules put together? Well, you're, you know, that's, that's already been shown. But what about taking on the bigger proof that the universe has in its power the manifest quality to to create, um, just a minute, I'm hugging Galen, who needs a hug, because she's going on a walk. The, the sky is yellow here. <laughs> Cat, the cats are in the house. Okay, so take care, loves. Hello all to all. Well, this allows my brain to resettle a bit. Um, what, if you, what if you went back to the most basic proof of all, and I know you'll key into this, Tom, because it's something you've thought about a lot, that you don't want to set up many preconditions at all. You would create, say, a digital matrix that has very, very basic properties that maybe are somehow related to emulating properties in the universe. And you said, you know, huzzah, this is this now this digital soup with a trillion elements is in it. We're not going to mess with it. We're just going to allow these basic properties to to, to roll forward, and we're going to see various things happen. You know, and there may be little blobs, or little bits, or little dots that move around, and they there may be you decide that there's heat, and there's, there's areas that are warm and less warm. You may decide that some of the dots have different properties, but you're really not you're not tricking the system much, and you're saying if if we can show that a mechanism for making making copies making replicators that make containers that make the ability to make another copy of the replicator comes in this soup with really, really hands-off, not God the tinkerer, and very little of the God the mechanic, the God that sets up initial preconditions, there's very, very few preconditions, then you've shown that the universe can manifest its weird ability to do this thing called evolution, this thing called a living system 
right in front of your own eyes, where it's, a tr it's much more trustable. Now, of course, here's the, here's the challenge, here's the rub. In all of these, you know, what if you set up a simulated, a simple sandbox, call it a sandbox or a solution box, and it didn't ever manifest. You ran a trillion cycles on a trillion multi-core CPUs, and it never manifested anything. Well, that would be a problem. So actually, what you kind of have to do is set up a, a generator that generates these sandboxes. And it generates them with slightly different uh, properties. And then runs them all at the same time to see whether or not the universe, you know, in that very, very simple, un unpredicated soup of sandboxes, uh, manifests the emergence. So this is a SETI at home model, fundamentally, that every computer connecting to the Evo grid creates its own sandbox and runs its own environment and the, the first to raise its hand and says, me, I've, I've you know, I have uh, uh, emergent evolutionary properties is, is the winner. Right. I think what, what interests me through this narrative, and I'm not sure if you heard the, the start of the call, but in putting out the um, request for uh, BioCD drop points, I heard back from both uh, Larry Yeager and Dimitri Terezopoulos, who you'll both be familiar with um, from Biota 2 and that kind of era. And what really touched me, and particularly through Dick Gordon's correspondence as well, is that we have a very high-level brain trust in terms of people that have been thinking about these problems for quite literally decades. But at the same point, both uh, Larry and Dimitri are now um, university educators, and they see, in the case of Larry, for example, he sees annually a group of students that come through and study an artificial life course with him. And I think these kind of problems and the framing of the stuff that Dick has described that you have in some degree reiterated is really something that can excite students as they come through. What interests me with Larry in particular is that he teaches a single course in artificial life, but really the challenge for, I think, the biota community is to actually make almost an academic framework that would give three years' worth of artificial life education to someone like uh, Larry or Dimitri or our other educators in a university environment. What's interesting with Larry in particular is that he is teaching informatics uh, and artificial life is part of informatics. And obviously, as I'm writing my nature-inspired informatics chapter, that is what I'm thinking about as well with regards to artificial life. So we are in an interesting stage currently where we are actually speaking not only to people who have been developing artificial life for 20 years, but also people that are currently contemplating whether they want to start developing artificial life currently. And I think these kind of challenges and the framing of these kind of challenges uh, excite uh, particular kinds of students as they come through. I was contacted by an academic at Georgia Tech who teaches gameplay dynamics and she wanted a pile of Biota CDs for her fall class um, and she teaches aspects of gameplay dynamics that don't immediately occur to me. But another thing that we've talked about is this idea of perhaps a game SDK, perhaps something that interfaces with the, uh, you know, the game development community group of students that are coming through as well. So I think in terms of my kind of collection of thoughts with regards to the 
future of biota. There are what I've characterized previously as three really exciting projects, and what interests me is that you've done in what you've just said what I predicted may happen in terms of moving the Evo grid towards what uh, Dick Gordon characterized as um, artificial non-life atoms that become artificial life in some regard. Now, what interests me with this project is, and there are so so many kind of venning groups of biology that could be quite excited by this. I know you, um, in referring to your friend, you didn't use the term theoretical biology. What term did you use, the fellow who will be speaking at the next grey thumb? Synthetic biology. Synthetic biology. So there are all these areas of biology that I think would bring in, um, uh, you know, groups of students that would be very excited with regards to this kind of challenge. Do you, is this a shift in your view with regards to the Evo grid from previous conversations, or do you think that what you've just described is still very central to your original ideas in the Evo grid, or is this a separate project from the Evo grid? Well. In a sort of a truth, truth in advertising test, the Evil Grid, as sort of pre- as you know, until this point specified, having emergence and an adaptation occur within an existing framework that's fairly rich, like Darwin's Park or or some of the large ant simulators or Noble Ape or you know Fluidium, aka Darwin at Home. I mean, there's a great appeal to doing that because there's a variety of environments and if a creature creature is encapsulated somehow and it moves between the environments and and somehow adapts, there's a lot of real meat there. Um, But the question is, does that really answer the most profound question? I don't know if it does. I think that it's almost like if you, you know, if you build a whole community of, of robotics and they all look kind of like a living thing or a complex adaptive thing, there's still a huge amount of artifice in there. Uh, you, you you can still see the, the telltale signs of the human hand. So are, you're not proving the, the basic fundamental point of, you know, well, let's let's go back, roll back a couple of, of, of steps. When I was had the offer from the University of Smart Lab at the University of London, the offer came in about a year ago to to enroll in their PhD program. And I I did all the paperwork, and then my father got sick. And so I, I put off going to any of the meetings. And then the offer came in again on the 31st of, Jan- of December last year. I thought, well, that, that's a portent. You know, it's a portent for something to do in 2008 and really start sort of a new life. At the same time, um, Dick Gordon's, offer of writing that book chapter had, was there, and I was actually writing it. And I realize now that these things are really related, in that if Biota took on a grand, the grand mission of saying, can emergence, can, can you create a soup in which emergence can, can, can happen, can be observed, you, you're at the intersection of, of a whole lot of questions in human existence. One of them is, do you need God to make the universe? Do you need God to manifest life? Or can life just is manifested out of the quantum mechanical soup or the information mechanical soup? It just, just happens. It may help biologists understand and have a mechanism to 
to simulate the beginnings of, of life, you know, down the road. Um, and the, the chapter uh, that I wrote and rewrote, you know, seven, eight times for Dick, and Tom, you, you know this because you kept getting all the versions because you did a dialogue for it. I ended up naming it, at the, literally in the last iteration, I named it uh, fi- uh, The God Detector. And when I explained what I was doing to, uh, to Nick Herbert, Nick said, you know what, this whole question of, of God, existence, emergence, origins of things, the properties of the universe is so interesting that you should pursue it uh, as a career and as, as a doctoral thesis. And he actually is one of my advisors, and he's one of the people who wrote a letter of recommendation for me to enter to be accepted into the program. So I, I listened, listened to him. He's also a phenomenal mind. He's a quantum theorist. And he's trying to explain to me how quantum mechanics works. And this, believe me, this is a big challenge. So it, it seems as though for me personally, I'm being drawn closer and closer toward uh, actually loading the, the, the mission of biota for me, if, if I would have a say in it, might be about answer, asking these really profound questions about where things came from, were they made or did they emerge? And if the universe has the property to to manifest uh, life, can we model that? Can we watch that in action? And that might be one of the great discoveries of the 21st century. And so if, if biota could be at the center of a public debate, um, you know, the launch of, of this book coming up, if we did some public events, we could pose these really fundamental questions. You know, would we get grants from the Templeton Foundation, or would be would we be debated in the Richard Dawkins Foundation uh, blogs? Would we enter that kind of, of of space if we tackled the questions at their more fundamental level? So, as a group of technologists signing up and saying we believe we can build tools, something called you know, the evil grid, evil grid you know, uh, primal evil grid, uh, to answer some of these great questions. So you've raised a number of issues, and I like the idea that artificial life is, is the, the bastard child of Dawkins in some regard that comes back and, and poses more questions to a contemporary Dawkins in some regard. But let's talk a little bit about the existing infrastructure and the existing simulators, because I think this is something that interests me both as a simulator and also an observer with regards to the Evo grid. When you talk about all these um, simulations, when you talk about uh, Darwin at Home or Tierra or all these kind of simulations, these things exist both in holes and in parts. And what I'm finding particularly interesting um, in doing my own writing with regards to the nature-inspired informatics piece is the, the, the cell that comes out of Noble Ape that may be useful for the Evo grid is in fact not the work that I did, but the work that Apple and Intel did with regards to atomizing and also vector processing. And it's certainly something I've talked about with Gerald as well, that there are components of all these simulations that could actually be very useful in the Evo grid. And they can all be quite abstract in some regard and certainly not something that um, you know, precursory users or folks that listen into this podcast on a kind of casual basis may immediately see but certainly the primary simulators are considerably more receptive to the various components that could go into something like this. 
But returning to my previous discussion point with regards to, you know, students and folks that are interested in participating and developing their own artificial life projects or contributing to, um, you know, the EvoGrid or one of the biota-related projects that we've discussed so far, there is a lot of information that is out there currently, and I think what what has interested me looking um, recently at the EvoGrid site and also Dama.com is that you were doing a timeline project currently with regards to avatars, and this has never really been done with regards to artificial life in any real meaningful way. I think Wikipedia offers a current introduction to various projects, but the unified history and particularly the timeline and the insights and the papers haven't really been captured with regards to artificial life, which really filters back into your earlier narrative in terms of the the nature of kind of deceased projects in the artificial life community and, and fossil projects in some regards as well. So with all these things, I mean, I, I also um, heard this week uh, a fellow who was an embedded journalist in Second Life, and it caught me that what artificial life needs in some regard is people that are willing to uh, you know, get some kind of documentation or narration with regards to all these things and start generating some means of communicating this. I've tried to do it with this, these podcasts, but in some regard, these podcasts have kind of ballooned into, you know, episodic bits of information. But in terms of a broad and a, a general spread for folks that are interested in starting their own artificial life developments or contributing to something like the EvoGrid, it can appear quite overwhelming still. What's your thinking with regards to the amount of information that has been gathered so far and how one can present this as a kind of meta-evo-grid discussion? Yeah, I think that you brought up something. There's, there's many needs, and we really should do a, an A-Life timeline. And af after the infrastructure is built maybe in a year or two, uh, for the virtual worlds timeline, we're, we're hoping to build it all with Ajax tools and the simile graphical scrollable timelines and, you know, a database underneath, and this is being coordinated by a large growing set of people. You could actually put together a, a, an A-Life timeline quite easily once that tool's in place. So I would hope, I would hope that this our little community uh, would just sort of take that on and start uploading things and uploading nuggets, so we could see the sweep of our our history. When I when I look back at the virtual worlds timeline work, we went back and one of the DigiBarn projects worked with a team to restore what we think is the first 3D virtual world from 1974, a uh, maze war. And just by doing this deep history, and I I was reading uh, George Dyson's book on Dar Darwin and the Machines, and he talks about the Institute for Advanced Study and the fellow there who created an artificial life-like piece of software running on the original von Neumann machine at IAS in 1950. And he called the, the program elements uh, symbioorganisms. So our, our field goes back to the first von Neumann machine. Um, the machine, which it was the model for every machine that was built since. And, and one of the first pieces of significant software written for it was an artificial life uh, you know, bio-simulator. So there's a huge amount to draw from, and it's not really been put together in a sort of encyclopedia or a course, but maybe that will emerge. So I think, 
that's the, the history side of things, but certainly finding your way around and what you want to work on. Uh, it's it through this podcast and through your work, Tom, and the previous work of the conferences and of course the artificial life conferences themselves. This field, the scope of this field, continues to sort of expand, um, you know, rapidly. Uh, becomes sort of a discussion about everything. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that a number of the fundamental concepts of artificial life uh, predate computing. And I think in terms of thought experiments and the kinds of things that contemporary artificial life developers do, sometimes during coding, sometimes prior to coding, and sometimes after coding, I think there were components that existed well prior to the um, advent of computers. I think Freeman Dyson is a good example, but even if you go back to, to Plato, Hume and Kant, there are elements of artificial life in their own thinking, um, particularly in the Republic. Um, but I think the, the issue with regards to the kind of information, the collation of information, is also very helpful in terms of the personalities and the people that are involved. I return to, I think the fellow's name was Gordon Selly, but the um, woman's name was Jane Prophet, and they're um, rich ecosystem and uh, ecologies that wandered over the, the, the hills and the, the grasslands that they created. I mean, when you look at a number of the projects that have died unnaturally in some regard, there is a lot of additional uh, information there. I, we maintain um, a collation of Carl Sims-related videos to remind folk of the, of the blocky creatures. I believe there's some overlap with the and the Internet Archive with some of that as well. But in terms of the, the breadth of information, the, the coherent history of artificial life is something which is captured in a wide variety of sources. There are BBC documentaries, there are, are uh, various popular books, and I think collating this kind of information, uh, you know, there are some folks that would want to phylumate it, uh, would want to say, you know, well, this is... You know, Dawkinsian artificial life, this creates the, um, you know, artificial life is what Chris Langton says it was. I mean, there are all these kind of uh, phylumated groups as well. But in terms of what we're looking for in the future, uh, this question is posed to me on a semi-regular basis from various correspondents. The question really is, does any of this history help us in terms of what we are trying to put into the future, or is it just a wonderful kind of historical narrative? And I think what interests me in terms of the folks that we currently have contributing, and particularly I think of Dick Gordon and Roy Plotnick as um, two seminal contributors that have uh, dramatically changed my thinking with regards to certain aspects of, of uh, artificial life, we really almost have a remit to encourage and introduce these kind of people in the biota community as well. And this is certainly what's exciting me with regards to the CD drop is that there is a, a passive way to introduce ourselves to these kind of people in the uh, near future. In fact, I'm still debating whether I should put on the packaging of the CD either physically on the, the printed surface that is on the CD or actually on the data that's on the CD, the requirement that people pass the CD on once they've actually used it or subscribed to the podcast or played the audio so it has a kind of pass-on property as well. In terms of, we talked a little bit about with the students coming in who already have computer science and biology interests, but in terms of the actual approach of um, historically people like Dawkins and also uh, people like Chris Winter, although Chris Winter vend into artificial life, obviously, but bringing in these kind of 
you know, p- popular and also, um, you know, um, sectional leaders, academic sectional leaders of their particular interests. How do you think we bring those people into the biota community? I think that, you know, certainly we could hold another conference. We would get a, you know, a subset of them and we could hold discussions. Um, we can continue to do the podcast and bring their views in. But, of course, the, the collating of, of all of the inputs is, is the challenge. And ultimately, of course, a book project will help greatly to, co- to collate what artificial life is for the 21st century. And I know that that's something you're working on, Tom. And in, in terms of my work on the Ph.D., I, what I'm hoping to do, and this is I'm getting inexorably like a tractor beam. Um, by the way, we may be working on a project to uh, uh, simulate a gravity tractor towing of an asteroid. Um, that, that'll be for some future podcast. But caught in this tractor beam of where my doctoral work becomes almost like a work of integrative philosophy, uh, bringing together the technologies of artificial life, um, the history of it, the history that you've just brought up, um, how sort of it's been a, a line of thought for, for thousands of years, uh, how it ties into thinking about our place in the universe, the very properties of the universe, and then then how it should help you know humanity reframe thinking about itself in, in this century. And that I could at least provide, if, if the dissertation is successful and I managed to to finish it in three to four years. It could become an integrative piece um, that that ties artificial life into bigger pictures, into bigger questions. So you raise a very interesting point there, and ironically this is actually the topic of next week's Biota Live. But you said that basically the philosophy of artificial life is actually the hook to bring these external thinkers in. And I think this is what you've actually described with regards to your talking to folks that you know, have no real, you know, background interest in artificial life, but can still appreciate the the curiosities of the project with regards to the future. So in terms of collating the information, we've discussed that in some regard, but framing the philosophy of artificial life is, is a very interesting problem, and I think it's something we're going to discuss in greater detail next week. But Margaret A. Bowden attended Biota 2, and she was within probably five years of the coining of the term artificial life, able to distill a number of papers into the philosophy of artificial life book, which was a, a seminal work in its own right with regards to the um, both the history and also the thinking of artificial life. Do you think there is a need for a kind of contemporary philosophy of artificial life book, or do you think it can be distilled through things like this podcast or perhaps the ability of particular journalists to come in in you know a few weeks, a few years, a few months' time, and start writing about this in a popular way. What's your thinking with regards to the movement of the philosophy of artificial life out of these kind of podcast discussions and into something that the general public can review? I think, Tom, that there's enough fresh thinking um, in this area that goes beyond uh, descriptions of projects and how they work and the personalities. And I'm, I need to read Margaret Bowden's book, obviously, after because I did did meet her, but didn't click that this is what she was contributing. So maybe she's done done it. But also your thinking, you know, I find your thinking to be really profound. You know, every time I I log off 
after an intense day online where the collective Internet has sucked a few more brain cells down the pipe, <laughs> I, I think, you know, Tom has a point. There's something emerging out there, and it's collective. It's so large we can't see it. We're part of it, and so, something has arrived, and it's something new in human history. Um, and uh, so your perspective on what does artificial life tell us about the thing that is consuming us, whether it's a t technological hydra or something that we're, we're, we're opting into. I mean, your thinking is very fresh and very provocative and, and needs to be covered in such a, such a new book. Well, I certainly had fun on the Apologia podcast, and I have fun talking about artificial life in a context outside what we do in Biota Live, because I think what I find is, and this is something which um, you know has, has a greater degree of emotional impact on me um, that I may let through these uh, relatively dry podcasts, but what I find is that there is a, a broader community, uh, probably... Uh, you know, orders of magnitude greater than the folks that listen to these podcasts or the folks that have had some kind of interaction with the artificial life community that are very receptive to the ideas that we're discussing currently. And in some regard, and this came through in the Apologia podcast, I'm not sure whether it will be podcast as such because obviously I haven't heard the edited version, but I think the critical mass with regards to um, I know you have a, a primary connection with Tom Merritt and these kind of people, the folks at Wired, the folks at Scientific American. I mean, I think in interacting through these sources out to a, a broader public, as you found with the original launch of Darwin at Home, these kind of outlets bring the thinking to a far greater audience. And um, whilst I agree, I think things like books and you know hard, tangible things that may be happening in the future are important. I think every connection that we have with regards to um, an external, perhaps artificial life curious, perhaps artificial life unaware audience is important. In the Apologia podcast I've talked about in both live as well, um, the work of Douglas Rushkov always comes to mind in terms of how we actively communicate these things, how we don't, you know, appear to say, well, you know, I, I tinker in a, in a simulation with apes and that's about it, you know. You start talking about the broader philosophy and the ideas behind that and the excitement that you get out of that, but in a context that other people can understand as well. And certainly when I was thinking about this topic for Biota Live this evening, one of the things I wanted to really discuss is basically the way that the participants and the folks that listen to these podcasts communicate the ideas and the vision of artificial life to people that may have no background or any real you know, contemporary understanding of what artificial life is. Um, one, uh, one little uh, hint that I think we can, it's a really a, a method. Uh, many of the listeners may or may not know that I have a small team that builds space visualization for NASA for mission design and, and public outreach and whatnot. So we visualize spacecraft and you can drive them around in 3D, in a 3D platform we built. But the power of 3D graphics and the power of movies made out of you know, rendered 3D animation to communicate is very profound. And we're seeing the YouTube revolution of people making these short animated pieces, 2D or 3D, to communicate really powerful ideas, political ideas or jokes or, or graffiti styles or whatever it is. If we made sort of artificial life the movie, 
that, that touched on all of the philosophy and touched on prior projects. You know, within within 30 seconds, you could kind of collate, say, Tierra and how it worked, just from Tom's slides and video we have of Tom talking, but make it into a computer graphic that kind of summarizes, this is how Tierra worked, and, and it shows the the Tierran creatures copying the string after string, and then you pull out and you see all of them, and you see them jumping between servers. And here's, you know, here's here's some other examples, and make a beautiful, beautiful movie about this, and show how it ties into robotics and how it ties into synthetic biology. And if one had such a piece, it could only be five minutes or ten minutes. It would go a huge distance, and I could see such a a piece being shown at the TED conference and part of a sort of a you know talk that I would do if I had the opportunity or and indeed if if I had the budget or I had a consistent set of funding I could hire our animators and our our team I could put them on this task and basically model model artificial life and and its philosophy its history what it is what it means to the future we could do a 5 minute 10 minute movie uh, that would would tell the story so you've raised a couple of really interesting points there, and I think certainly the success that we've experienced with regards to this audio podcast could probably map into a video podcast as well. I know uh, Gerald and I more recently have been doing some experiments with regards to video podcasting, and I think particularly uh, Al's footage at Greytham, Silicon Valley, and also obviously the, the Boston folks' uh, Google videos of... Uh, of previous Graytham meetings, I think, are, are all moving in that direction. But you're right, there is a need for um, something which is very visually attractive and something which can bring in uh, a new audience to what we discuss here in, in audio and what we tinker with in software and uh, other things off uh, Biota Live. And this really is a question, as you've noted, with regards to workload. Now, through Blog Talk Radio and through these kind of technologies, we've been able to do quite amazing things for very little cash outlay in terms of uh, actually getting the message out. But you make an important point that to move into something which is more uh, video professional, um, it requires a group with a different skill set or perhaps more contributors or perhaps funding or these kind of things. And I think some of the skills already exist in the community. And um, I reflect here on the uh, demonstration that you gave of Noble Ape uh, at Greytham Silicon Valley. And I think someone asked, are they, uh, you know, Windows 95 graphics? And my thought was, oh, oh, if you saw it with running when it was running Windows 95, you wouldn't be asking uh, those kind of questions when it was... Uh, monochrome running on Windows 95, but there's, there's a problem in the contemporary artificial life community, which thanks to people like Jeffrey Ventrella, I mean, real polymaths, uh, you don't get to see the underlying problem. But contemporary computing, and as you've noted with regards to contemporary visualization, you can only be an uh, expert or even a generalist in a certain number of fields. And this, I think, is the problem with contemporary artificial life, that people are specialists in particular areas but can't really master everything that is necessary to communicate very rich projects to a level that is even subspore in some regard. You know. So in terms of this, um, and particularly also with reference to the EvoGrid, I know we've had some discussion online over the past week about how 
the EvoGrid communication can be improved through use of the Biota Wiki and these kind of things. Do you think there is a necessity to bring in people professionally, professionally to have salaried people involved with regards to Biota, or do you think there is still a, a model that could be fundamentally open source and just bring in people that have talents in particular areas? I think that it's, it's usually a rare situation where an all-volunteer community is able to pull off a really professional piece of work. It's, it's rare. Um, to some extent, and you know, even things like SETI at home, people did have time on their day jobs. I mean, they were partially funded to do that. Then they were using equipment, and there was a community of interest, and they built you know, a really great thing. It was probably a lot easier than what we're talking about here. If you do have... If you do have some seed capital and you can have, you know, when a consortium is formed, often the corporations that form them will put in $50,000 or $250,000 so that at least there can be a, a staff of a couple people and then an executive director, and they keep things alive and they really get things done. People have limited attention spans, and if there's somebody to bother to nag them to do things, they'll, it'll get done and to hold the meetings. And they, These corporations form these consortia are smart enough to know you, you just can't get anything done as a pure volunteer organization. In the hobbyist world, you know, there can be a friction possibly between the hobbyist thinking, well, someone's being paid to, to coordinate what we're doing. Do we really agree with that? Because we're just, it's all blood, sweat, and tears for us. You know, and I've, I've heard this sort of concern voiced at the Grey Thumb meetings in Boston, but Truthfully, is if if you had some funds, and it could be to you know pay somebody to do a protocol a little bit, a grant sort of micro grant, somebody to build a really good GUI or a really good uh, graphics or to make a promotional movie, uh, you you would get a lot further. You really would get a lot further. So this is an interesting problem, and certainly my own reflection with regards to Noble Ape, particularly when Apple got involved, my thought was, wow, I can now get an OpenGL component, I can now get uh, carbon events and real-time windows through uh, the carbon interface and now the Cocoa interface. And what I found was actually that the stuff that they contributed was more to do with scratching their own itches than my itches in some regard. And I think this is probably the lesson that out of, uh, well, artificial life developers that have contributors, but more importantly, open source developers find quite frequently is that the, the benefits that one gets through open source aren't always through the direction that one would like to take them in some regard. What I find interesting, particularly with the kind of skilled professionals that develop artificial life, and here I'm thinking of uh, Jeffrey, John Klein, uh, Gerald de Jong, uh, you know, frequent participants who are also um, phenomenal software engineers in their own right. In terms of their uh, professional salaries and things like that, I think the the kind of skills that they have, the fact that they're actively donated cannot be uh, underestimated in any way with regards to the kind of contributions that they've made. Do you see that there is a difficulty with regards to actually attributing a, a kind of dollar amount for services for, for skilled professionals where it will be far under what they would be paid normally? Or how, how do you see that actually translating in some real sense? I think, I think it, this kind of thing 
can happen when you have a kind of somewhat charismatic but diplomatic leader that goes out and musters forces and makes it all work and understands what fairness is and what the funding can be. But I think there's another model. There's another model, which is the big science, the big physics model. What if, like the Human Genome Project, I, I did a keynote speech at a conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, it was called After the Genome. And it was all these people who were funded substantially, you know, six, seven hundred million a year in the, in the mapping of the human genome. And it struck me that, you know, the big, big physics projects like the National Ignition Facility, the Large Hadron Collider, what if you cast this sort of the great evil grid effort of creating a, a, a fairly random soup and waiting for emergence to happen as a giant, almost like big physics? And then you got the, the typical big physics thing, which is like big funding and, you know, big competitions and, uh, you know, big simulators, big hardware, whatever, to see if you can make this thing ignite sort of an, as another type of ignition, not fusion, but but life ignition, a life ignition system. And you convince somebody to capitalize it, like a, a one of the many billionaires who threw in the seed capital and you build an institute and you just went for it. And you just brought in all these best people, all these best of breed people, and you that's another approach. That's sort certainly, of science certainly. Approach. Unfortunately, Bruce, we have only one minute remaining, so I'm not sure where you're placed next week, but it would be wonderful having you on the call to discuss the philosophy of artificial life and if we have a, a moment possibly return to this thinking as well it's always wonderful to chat with you bruce my pleasure tom so next week uh, 8 p.m pacific friday we will be discussing what is the philosophy of artificial life thank you for listening i'll look forward to talking to you all then